You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. The Bible uses three different terms to describe three different levels or kinds of relationships that people commonly have with God. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. First, there is the term God-fearer. We see this throughout the Bible. So there's the term God-fearer. Secondly, there's the term believer. And thirdly, even beyond that, there is another term, and that is disciple. Each of these terms describes a different level of relationship with God that people commonly have. And here in Acts chapter 10, we're going to be looking at a man and at a family, and we're going to see how they progress through each of these three stages, from being God-fearers to becoming believers, and even beyond believers to becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about what characterizes each of these different levels of relationship with God, as well as what it is that God ultimately desires for us. And as we look at the story of this family, we're going to ask ourselves, which of these best describes where I'm at with God? Am I a God-fearer? Am I a believer? Or am I a disciple? And why should I want to move up that ladder, so to say, in my level of commitment, in my level of belief, and how can I go about doing so? So the title of today's message is, From Belief to Discipleship. Now we left off in the book of Acts last week meeting a man named Cornelius and this is what we read about him in Acts chapter 10 verse 1. This is our introduction to this man. It says this, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the poor and prayed continually to God. So here's Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. And as we talked about last week, he's just an all-around good person. In fact, he's not just a good person. He's a great person. Cornelius was a family man. He was a man who was generous. He liked to help other people. And on top of all of that, we read that Cornelius was religious. But he, like many people today, he was religious but kind of in his own way, right? Because he wasn't a... A pagan, So he was Roman, he had grown up in that pagan society, but he had rejected paganism. He had seen the fallacy of it, the vanity, the indulgence of paganism, and he rejected it, instead choosing to recognize that there's a God in heaven who created us and who rules over the world and over our lives. So Cornelius was not a pagan, but yet at the same time, he was not a Jew either. He had not converted to Judaism. He had this great respect for God. He lived in an upright way. He even prayed. He was religious, but in his own way. And doesn't that just describe so many people that we know, that live in our neighborhoods, that we go to work with? Cornelius was what the Bible refers to as a God-fearer. In fact, he led his whole family to be God-fearers, and that's good. This is the first category, this first level of relationship with God that people commonly have, and that is this level of God-fearer. That's who this family was. Now, statistics show that the majority of people in the United States, the majority of the population, even if they're not practicing Christians, the majority of people in our society believe in God. And so this category of God-fear, I believe it encompasses most of the people who live in our neighborhoods, who uh, many of your family members is a lot of the people that you go to work with. These are people who believe in God. And like Cornelius, they're good people, so to say, right? They, they love their families. They like to do good and help other people. They are, but the thing is, they're not necessarily committed to what they might call organized religion. You, you hear that from time to time. You know, I believe in God. I, I try to be a good person, but I'm just not 
not into organized religion. A lot of people like that ambiguity. They like the perceived sense of freedom that comes with doing their own thing and not committing to anything in particular, any, any way of believing. And so they just believe in God. They're religious in their own way. Yet for all the God-fearers out there, I, I would point this out. There is a nagging question that begs to be answered. There is a conundrum that they have to face, that they have to deal with. <clears throat> and, and this is a question that Cornelius is going to be faced with here in this chapter. And that question is this. If there is a God, then what does that God want you to do? If there is a God, then what does he require of you? See, the whole thing with being a God-fearer, with believing in God, but not really being committed to anything, kind of being a free agent, so to say, right, who decides for yourself what you're going to believe, how you're going to honor God. The, the reason that kind of thinking is so popular in our day and age is because it's centered around you and what you want to do. Like, what kind of God do you want to believe in, right? Have your pick. How do you want to worship God? The problem is that that kind of thinking just does not answer that nagging question that, that demands to be answered, and that is this. If there is a God and you say there's a God, then what does that God want you to do? What does that God require of you? Because in that case, it doesn't really matter what I want to believe about God, right? You, see, you hear people say stuff like, well, I like to think about God like this. Well, if there is a God, then the real question isn't, well, what do I like to think about him? The question is, who is he? In reality, in that case, it's not how do I want to worship God, it's rather how does God want to be worshipped, right? Because sometimes you hear people say, well, the way I like to worship is by going fly fishing or by going on a hike. Well, that, that's all well and good. It sounds like a lot of fun. But if there is a God, I think the first question needs to be not how, does, how do I want to worship God, but how does God want to be worshipped? Does he want to be worshipped in that way? Maybe yes, but maybe no. But, but if there is a God, we should probably consult with him and ask him what he wants us to do. Thank you, Terry. I, I, uh, <laughs> I went to the, uh, this is a side note. I'm going off my notes. I went to the CU-CSU game last night, and uh, it went into overtime. I got a little excited, so I lost my voice. I thought I got it back, but I didn't. All right, so if there is a God, the question is, the burning question is, not what do I want to do for God, but what does God want me to do? And it's a good thing to believe that God exists and to have respect for God, but if that's all, if that's where it stays, if you leave it at that and it never goes beyond that, then you're stopping short of asking what is the, one of the most important questions in the world, and that's this, that if there is a God, then what does he require of me? If there is a God, then what does he want me to do? Now, a lot of people in the world like Jesus in the sense that they are fond of Jesus. They think that Jesus was a good person who said some great things that have shaped our society, the world as we know it, in a positive way, and that's absolutely true. If you think about it, most of the old cultures of this world, they were shame and honor cultures. They encouraged pride rather than humility. They valued dominance over service. They, they valued violence more than peaceableness, glory more than modesty, loyalty to one's own tribe 
rather than equal respect for all individuals. But Jesus came along and his teachings changed all of that. The reason our society values the things it does today is in large part due to the teachings of Jesus. All of the world has been affected in a positive way by the teachings of Jesus Christ. But if you look at the words and teachings of Jesus, you'll find something interesting about the core message of what he came to teach. In other words, what Jesus taught that people needed to do, what Jesus called people to do in essence. If you would turn with me to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, I just want to read you two verses. Here in uh, Mark's Gospel is interesting because unlike some of the other Gospels that start with the birth story of Jesus, Mark doesn't. He just jumps right into the ministry of Jesus. And, and in Mark chapter 1, the very first words that Jesus speaks, the seminal words with which he begins his ministry are these. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And then you go down a few verses, and the very next thing we hear Jesus say is this. In verse 17, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So the first thing Jesus called people to do was believe the gospel. The second thing Jesus called people to do was follow me. Believe and follow me. That's what it comes down to. If you really want to know what Jesus taught, what the core message that he came with was, it was this, believe the gospel and follow me. That's what it comes down to. And so for the God-fearer, the person who has respect for God and is maybe religious or spiritual, but just kind of in their own way, the nagging question that they have to answer, that they have to deal with is this. If there is a God and you say there's a God, then what does God want you to do? And here's the answer that Jesus gave us to that question. Here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to believe the gospel and follow him. See, being a God-fearer is a good start, but it's not enough. And we see that here in our text, that be, even though Cornelius and his family, even though they believed in God, even though they were good people, God doesn't say, ah, they're fine as they are, I'll just leave them be. No, instead this chapter tells us the story of how God pursued Cornelius, he spoke to him in a vision, he sent someone to him to tell him about Jesus, to share the gospel with him, so that Cornelius and his family who believed in God, they could not only just believe in God, but they could become believers in the gospel. And that's what's going to happen. Let's uh, pick up the story here in chapter uh, 10, verse 24 of the book of Acts. On the following day, they, this is Peter and this group of people who've been sent to get Peter, they entered, um, they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Now in our study last week, we saw how God spoke to Cornelius and he told him that there was a man named Peter who was staying in Joppa, which was not very far from Caesarea. And he said, I want you to send some people, bring Peter to your house because Peter has a message from me for you. And so Cornelius sends these servants, they go and they bring Peter to this house. Cornelius doesn't know who Peter is. He just knows, you know, this is some guy that God wants to speak to him through. We know that this is Peter the Apostle. At the same time that God is speaking to Cornelius, God was also speaking to Peter. And God was helping him to understand more clearly the gospel. God spoke to Peter and showed him that all people are unclean by nature. And that Jesus came for the purpose of making unclean people clean. Of making unholy people right with God. All people, no matter what their background or ethnicity or nationality. And it was as Peter came to this understanding of the gospel that he began setting aside his prejudice against people who weren't Jewish. 
And at that very moment, these messengers from Cornelius, they showed up, they knocked on the door, Peter invited them in, and they, the next day, took Peter with them to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. Now, this would have been a two-day walk to go from Joppa to Caesarea. It wasn't really all that far, but if you're walking, things just take longer. So after walking for two days, Peter finally arrives at the house of Cornelius, and as, you know, he comes, Cornelius has gathered family and friends to hear this message from God that Peter has to share with them. We read in verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I am too a man. Now you can kind of sense the awkwardness of this moment, can't you? Right, Cornelius is obviously nervous. He, he's never been in this kind of situation before. He's excited about Peter coming. And he wants to make sure that Peter knows how how much he respects him and honors him. He's got this man of God, so to say, coming to his house. And as you can imagine, he's not really sure how you greet a man of God. And so Cornelius greets Peter by bowing down to the ground and worshiping him. And Peter says, no, 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 please don't do that. Now you gotta kind of feel for Cornelius here, I think. I mean, how many of you have ever been in a situation in which you don't know the proper etiquette uh, in that situation, and, and then you did something awkward, and it was weird, right? Cornelius, he's, that's kind of him right now. He's trying to honor Peter. He's trying to show him respect, but he kind of overdoes it, right? He overplays his hand, and it's a bit awkward. And Peter has to say, man, don't do that. That's not right. And when I was a pastor in Hungary, there were a lot of people who would come to our church who had never been to church before in their life. There were a lot of people in, you know, in Hungary who just never been to church before. And so they would come to our church and th this is their first time ever setting foot inside a church. And many of them didn't know what the proper etiquette was, which led to some interesting scenarios and situations. We tried to be super gracious with these people because we knew that they were nervous and they wanted so hard to do the right thing, but they were just unsure of what to do and what was expected because they'd never been in that setting before. And I remember on several occasions, you you know, we'd invite people to church, they'd show up on Sunday morning, and they would, uh, they would give me a bottle of wine, or they would give me a bottle of brandy as a way to say, you know, thanks for letting me come to your church. Uh, other people would show up and bring me these big bouquets of flowers. It was a bit awkward. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, we had these other people who'd never been to church. They also didn't know the etiquette. There was this one lady who, who came to church and, and she came for the first time. She really enjoyed Bible study, worship. She thought it was great. She couldn't wait to come back the next week. So the next week she comes back, it's her second time at church. So during the study, she sits down in the back row and she lights up a cigarette, right? Because, uh, you know, there's one, sermons are great, but you know what makes them better? Paul Malls, right? So she's like, uh, she just lights up a cigarette and she just sat back and enjoyed the sermon while smoking a cigarette. All right, she had just never been to church before. And, you know, we were super gracious to people because we thought it was beautiful. How beautiful it is that these people are coming into a church. They're coming to hear the word of God for the first time. I, I don't mind all that stuff. They're just trying to figure it out. And that's what we have here with Cornelius. He wants to show Peter how much he honors him. And so he bows down at his feet and worships him. And Peter's like, no, 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 man, not that. Don't do that. I I'm just a man like you. Stand up. Now, here's what's beautiful. Cornelius and Peter are trying to honor each other. Cornelius is honoring Peter, obviously, and Peter is also honoring Cornelius. He, Peter's honoring Cornelius by walking two days to get to his house. Peter's honoring him by entering his house. The custom of the Jews at that time was that they would never enter the house of a Gentile. It wasn't a biblical mandate. It was just their 
cultural custom, their prejudice. But Peter is honoring Cornelius by going against custom and showing respect for this man by entering his home. Peter's also honoring Cornelius by lifting him up off the ground to stand on equal footing with him, stand beside him rather than bow down before him. He's raising Cornelius to his level. It's, it's been put this way. Peter refused to treat Cornelius as a dog, and he refused to let Cornelius treat him like a god. It's a great picture of what we have uh, written for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, where it says this, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Like it's a competition, right? Outdo one another in showing honor. That's the kind of community that God wants to exist amongst his people. That we would always be looking for new and creative ways to outdo one another in showing honor. You know, one interesting side note here. Whenever worship is offered in the Bible to men or to angels, it's refused. It's rejected. The response is always like Peter here. No, don't worship me. I'm just a man. I'm not God, right? Only God is to be worshiped. But what's interesting is that when you talk about Jesus, now he doesn't do that. He actually received worship. He allowed people to worship him. And that just speaks of his deity and his claims to deity. I've put some verses up here on the screen. Also, if you're reading that in the YouVersion Bible app, I've put some notes in there about this as well. So you can check that out and look it up later. But several times people worship Jesus. And rather than telling them not to, Jesus received that worship as God. Let's continue reading in verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter's reminding these people of what a big deal it is that he's even in their house. This is the house of a Gentile. This is going against every cultural practice. Now, it might not seem like a big deal to you or me today, but for the Jewish people at that time, this was huge. They, They believed that Gentiles were unclean ceremonially, and to enter the house of a Gentile would to make them ceremonially unclean. But Peter's telling these people, he's saying, look guys, this is something I've never done before, but it's something I'm doing because God has been doing a work in my heart. God has been showing me something. God has been helping Peter to come to a fuller understanding of the gospel. And as that has happened, Peter has begun, right, to to shed the cultural baggage, the prejudice that he had because he's beginning to see things now in light of the gospel. And the realization that Peter had was this, all people are really in the same boat together. All of us are unclean by nature. Yes, Gentiles are unclean, they're ungodly, they're unholy, sure. But the message of the gospel is that I too have been unclean. I have been unholy, I've been ungodly, but God came into my life and did a work through Jesus Christ on the cross in order to make me clean. He came to make me right with God by taking my sin, my uncleanness upon himself and washing me of all impurity and unrighteousness and making me clean so I can stand before God. And if God can do that for me when I was unclean, well then God, why can't God do that for them who are also unclean? Can't God do that for anybody? Yes, the Gentiles are unclean, but God welcomed me when I was un- unclean and God made me clean. The message of the gospel is that anybody who comes to Jesus Christ can and will be made clean. No matter where they are, no matter what's in their past, no matter who they are. 
This is what God had been teaching Peter. This is what brought him to the point of being willing to cross this threshold and step into the house of a Gentile man. You see, when you really understand the gospel, there are two things that happen in your heart. The first thing that happens is that it makes you become incredibly humble. And the second thing that happens is that it makes you incredibly bold. On the one hand, when you understand the gospel, it makes you incredibly humble. You know why? Because you realize that you're more sinful than you even ever thought. Right? And then for that reason, you have no right to look down your nose at anybody else. And on the other hand, not only does it make you incredibly humble, but at the same time, it makes you incredibly bold because you see that God loved you even in spite of that. You see that the gospel is that you're more loved by God than you ever imagined you could be. You're so loved by God that he was willing to die for you. And in him, you're forgiven, you're saved, you're cleansed, you have an eternal hope, you have a new identity, you become a child of God, and he has promised to work all things, even the bad things, for your good and for his ultimate glory. And because of that, you can be incredibly confident. You can be incredibly bold in knowing who you are and where you stand before God and what the future holds for you in him. And we have a great example of that here in the life of Peter. This example of this extreme humility and this extreme boldness, on the other hand, in this man who has come to really understand the gospel. We see humility. He no longer thinks of himself as better than these Gentile people. He's willing to enter their house. He's willing to stand on equal footing with them and treat them as equals. And we see boldness, that he's willing to go against the flow of culture in order to follow God and do what's right before God, despite the fact that his peers are probably not going to like it. People are probably going to criticize him for it. He doesn't care. He's bold. The gospel has made Peter at the same time incredibly humble and incredibly bold. And the same will happen for you and me when we understand the gospel as well. Let's read verse 29. So when I was sent for, this is Peter speaking, when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? He says, I've walked two days to get here, so tell me, why am I here? Verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come to me. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He says, they say to him, God told us that you have a message for us, Peter. So now we're we're, we're here to hear it. Now think about that. I just put myself in that situation and say, what would I do? Would I be ready if someone asked me, please share with me the message of Christianity. Please share with me the message of the gospel. Ask yourself this question. If somebody asked you that, if, somebody, if that opportunity was presented to you, would you be able to clearly and succinctly present the gospel if the situation arose? I hope you are because the Bible encourages us in this way. It says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that you have. So I would encourage you to think about how you would articulate the gospel to someone if the opportunity presented itself. Peter was ready. Let's read again from verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand, God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
And for the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is a glorious, condensed version of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I love how Peter begins by saying, I want you to know this. God loves you Gentiles just as much as he loves the Jewish people. God shows no partiality. He loves you just as much as he loves me. Now that was not common. That was not the common way that Jewish people thought in that day. But Christianity came along and Christianity did something unprecedented, unprecedented in history, unprecedented in the ancient world, and that was this. It said that the gospel is for everybody. It disregarded racial and cultural and national limitations and said the gospel is for everyone. Now this is an idea that's actually rooted very deeply in the Old Testament scriptures, but because of prejudice, because of cultural pride, the Jewish people had largely ignored those scriptures which spoke of God's love for other nations. But Christians came along so moved by the gospel, so moved by what Jesus had done for them, and they read those same Old Testament scriptures, and they understood that God didn't just love them, God loved all the people of the world. And they realized that God doesn't just look at the color of your skin, God looks at your heart. God doesn't look at how much money you have in the bank, he looks at your heart. He doesn't look at national borders and boundaries, he sees individuals, and he looks at the heart of each individual. And anyone, verse 43, who turns to him in repentance and faith will be forgiven of their sins because of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. So here's Peter speaking to a group of God-fearers, and what does he say to them? He says, it's good that you believe the God, it's good that you believe in God, but that alone is not enough. What you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. Now the reason we must move from just vague belief in God to repenting and believing in the gospel is this. I would put it this way. Simply agreeing that certain things are true is not going to change your life. You have to integrate those beliefs into your life in order for them to have an effect on you. For example, there's this place in the book of James, right? James chapter 2 verse 19, where James says this, you believe that there's one God? Well, in Greek, I, I think the right translation is, well, whoop-de-doo, right? He says, e even the demons believe that and they tremble. In other words, here's what he's saying. Hey, just believing in God that he exists, that, that's really nothing all that special. I mean, demons believe that God exists, but they're not saved. They're not transformed by it. What we need is something more than just believing that God exists. What we need to do is embrace the gospel, to put your faith and your hope in what Jesus Christ did for you. So Cornelius and the people of his household, they're going to move from being uh, God fears to being believers, verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
They heard the gospel. They put their faith in the gospel. And, and I believe that every person actually needs to make this step, this transition, from being a God-fearer to being a disciple. In fact, I believe that many people who go to church, maybe even some of you here today, it's a transition that you need to make from being a God-fearer to being a believer in the gospel. Here's how it happened for me. Just uh, my story is this. I grew up always believing in God. Uh, I went to a Lutheran school and I went through catechism and confirmation and I knew a lot of things about God and I believed in God. If you ask me, do you believe in God? Absolutely, I believe in God. I believe that God created everything. There were times when I prayed. But there came a point in my life when I was 16 years old when for the first time in my life I really believed the gospel. You see, I'd always believed in the existence of God. I believed that Jesus was a historical figure. I even believed that what the Bible said about Jesus was true. But it was something different to believe those things. And then it was something different to believe the gospel. To believe that it was true and that it was true for me. And at that point, it's not just distant, historical, cold facts. It was personal. It was my greatest need. It was a matter of life and death and eternity. And I was condemned. But God came and saved me. Even me. You know, a lot of times pastors say this phrase, you hear it a lot from pastors, right? Like, you can have a personal relationship with God. And we think, as pastors, that that sounds very appealing. Who wouldn't want that? Sounds pretty great, right? But I think that for a lot of people who are not Christians, if you tell them you can have a personal relationship with God, that's about as attractive of an offer as if you would tell a school child, you can have a personal relationship with the principal, right? They're like, oh, well, I know the principle is there, and I know he's probably pretty important, and he does a lot of important stuff, and I'm glad he's there and all, um, but, you know, kind of the goal of my life is to stay on his good side and avoid him, right, because, you know, he's doing his thing, and I'm doing my thing, and that's just how it is, right? I respect the principle, but I'm not really out there looking to have a personal relationship with the principle, and I think that's how many people feel about God, right? That's a, a God-fearer stance. It's kind of like, hey, I'm good with God. I try to stay on his good side, try and keep all the rules and all that. I, I, you know, I'll just leave it at that. I'm not looking to have a personal relationship with him. But what if, think about this scenario. What if you're that school child and one day you find out that several years ago, before you can even remember, you were deathly ill. And you needed several transplants and infusions in order to be alive. And a search was done near and far for all possible donors. No one was willing. And even those who were willing, they weren't a match for you. They couldn't do what you needed to have done to save your life, except for one person. And that's the principle of your school, right? And he gave two kidneys, a liver, his right arm, half his brain, all of his blood, to the point where he died on the table. But in miracle of all miracles, he's alive. And he saved your life. Now, do you think that that knowledge, knowing that now about the principle, would change your feelings towards the principle? Well, absolutely it would. Of course it would. Because at that point, guess what? It has become personal. It's become personal. The way you relate to him would change. The way you think about him would change. You smile at him when he walks by in the hall. You trust him more because you understand that his intentions towards you are good. And you want to know, who is this one who would do such an amazing thing for me? Now, when you really understand the gospel, it changes the way you think about God. It changes your desires towards God. It's when the gospel becomes personal that you move from being a God-fearer to being a believer. And we read this in, in verse 45. We see that they went even one step further than just being believers. 
And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Not only did these people believe the gospel, but they were baptized as disciples of Jesus. And then Peter stayed with them for many days. What we're seeing here is that Cornelius and his family, they entered into this third kind of relationship with God. They, they weren't just believers at this point. Now they're becoming disciples. They went from belief to discipleship. When Jesus left his disciples, he gave them a solemn charge. He said this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Jesus said these words to who? To his disciples. And he was telling his disciples to go out and make more disciples. You see, I could put it this way. A disciple is a believer, but a disciple is more than a believer. You could say that every disciple is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. The essence of what it means to be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. And there are three important characteristics of what it means to be a disciple. And we'll close with this. First of all, to be a disciple is practical. The word disciple, it means student. It's kind of the relationship we commonly think of between a master and an apprentice. There's a very practical nature to it. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the core practices of the early Christian disciples. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. They were disciples of Jesus, students. They were devoted to learning, to celebrating, to practicing their faith. So discipleship is practical. It's when you go beyond just theory and you go to doing. Also, not only is discipleship practical, but discipleship is a matter of identity. In the ancient world, the identity of a disciple was fully bound up with the one they were a disciple of. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to take on a new identity, to derive our identity from who we are in relation to him. And thirdly, to be a disciple is a journey. Now remember Jesus' core message, two things, repent and believe the gospel and follow me. To be a disciple is to actively follow Jesus, and following him implies a journey. And in every journey, you leave where you're at, and you go somewhere else, somewhere else from where you're at. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, follow me on this journey. I'm going to take you from where you are right now, and we're, we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to go somewhere you've never been before. And in every journey, isn't there, there is a decisive moment, there's a point when you take that first step, and you depart, you leave, you set off on the journey. So I would ask you today, how about you? Have you taken that first step? Have you set off on this journey of following Jesus, letting him lead you from where you are to where he wants to take you? To go on this journey means to let him lead you and let him determine the course. And after you've begun the journey, it's important to remember the fact that it is a journey, which means that it's ongoing, it's a process, and it takes time. I imagine that as Peter spent time with these people over these many days that we read about, that he was teaching them what it means to be disciples of Jesus. Now that they've believed the gospel, how does the gospel speak to every area of our lives? How does the gospel affect our identity? How does the gospel shape our actions? And what does it mean to follow Jesus as he leads us from where we are to where he wants to take us, where we've never been before, but where our hearts long to be? Here with Cornelius and his family, we see this progression from belief to discipleship. And I would challenge you to ask yourself this morning, where do you stand on that continuum between being a God-fearer, a, a believer, and a disciple? 
And I'll tell you this, God's will for your life is that you would move from belief to discipleship, that you would believe the gospel truly and personally, and that you would take that first step and every consecutive step after on this journey of following him from where you are now to where he wants to take you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for your great love for us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have loved us even when we weren't altogether lovely. But Lord, in your love for us, you are making us lovely. We thank you for that, Lord. And I pray for everyone here today who says, you know what, it is time for me to move from being just a God-fearer, kind of a free agent, doing my own thing, to believing the gospel truly and personally for my own life. And Lord, I pray for those today who would say, you know what, I believe the gospel, but it's time for me to become a disciple. It's time for me to take this step on this journey of following Jesus from where I am now to where he wants to take me. Lord, would you do that work in our lives? Would you help us to make those transitions and become those disciples who you desire us to be for our good and for your glory? And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution Series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.